Welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast. I am Brad Levitt, host and founder of AFT. We are super excited to bring this amazing guest list to you of people that specialize in business, marketing, social media, entrepreneurship, and most of all, how to build a great company. AFT is a local commercial and residential general contractor in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we are continuously seeking ways to bring value to our industry, clients, and network. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcast. Well, welcome everyone. I am Brad Levitt and we are here on the AFT Construction Podcast and I'm super excited to introduce Aaron Davenport. Um, He is from SCS Foam and Aaron is one of the nation's leading building science consultants with over 20 years experience in the field. And the reason we're super excited to bring him in is because today we had our very first uh, building science architectural symposium. So we had a conference in, in Old Town Scottsdale and brought most of the top architects and engineers and subcontractors that we use to this symposium. And Aaron gave us amazing two-hour presentation. And so we want to recap that. We brought him in now uh, with his experience and and talk through some points that we feel will be beneficial to our listeners. And so Aaron, welcome. Glad to have you. Thank you. And to kick it off, tell us about one of the topics that came up with our uh, group today was advanced framing. So tell us what that is. A lot of our listeners may not even know what advanced framing is. Yeah, I mean, advanced framing is, um, it's, it's, it's funny, it's not something that's particularly new. It was something that was started with, you know, really value engineering um, by the HUD administration in the 60s. And the idea was, how can we look at the load paths and be able to kind of opt- more optimally frame a house? Oh, by the way, when you frame a house, what's the number one thing that makes drywall crack? Well, it's attachment points, right? Right. So the less attachment points to the less amount of lumber, you know, the greater the resiliency of the product. So the idea of advanced framing is really something that's been heavily researched in the last 20 years by the Department of Energy under the Building America program. And what the idea is, is if we actually go to 24 on centers um, and go from two by four to two by six, we actually end up with less board footage of wood. So we save money on wood. We actually get something that has less drywall cracks and is more resilient. And we get something that from a thermal efficiency standpoint, we can increase the thermal efficiency by almost 75%. So let's let's walk through a couple things for our listeners. So you talk about, uh, you know, most people just understand the, uh, the industry standard would be 16 inches on center, right? Everything's 16 mm-hmm. inches on center. And so the technique here is to, to eliminate that and go to 24 inches on center. And the reason for doing that, because now we have more insulation in the wall, right? So this allows us a more efficient and stronger R value. Yeah, we get stronger R value, but we also get a stronger, more durable building. Right. Because when you go mm-hmm. 24 on center with two by six, Essentially, what you're doing structurally, you're getting twice the structural capacity you have in 60 on center, two by four, which is really what kind of the minimum code is built on. So, when you do that, you're actually building something that's much more unique, that's much better. And from a thermal efficiency standpoint, I mean, you're doubling the performance almost. So, it's much better all the way around. And ultimately, you get something that's much more comfortable for an end consumer because it's much more thermally efficient. Which is amazing, and and help us with this, because one of the challenges that we deal with in construction, there's this old school mentality, and I think one of the most fascinating things, at least for me today at the conference, was 
all of these different processes that we'll get into, advanced framing and mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, closed cell insulation, these have been around for a long time. Like this right. isn't new technology, but yet we have not implemented it. And it's funny because I think a lot of our framers have pushed back that, hey, you know, this is great advanced framing. It's a great concept for a production home, but on mm -hmm. a custom home, it won't work. So speak to that why, you know, why it will work on a custom home and why that mentality is just incorrect and how we can address that with our subs. Well, it's interesting at the uh, symposium today, we were talking to some of the architects in the audience and, you know, when, when we threw it out there to the, the architects in, in the room, it's like, you know, 24 and center, it's just a sh stroke of a pen. You know, there's, there's nothing hard about seeing that we're going to go 24 on center versus 16 on center. The idea is that we're going to do this in conjunction with a few other things like HVAC, and we're going to put it together as a system. We're going to really get the maximum benefit as a system together. And really, when we're talking about the walls, we're just talking about one component of the system. When we incorporate the walls, the floors, the roof, the ceiling, everything together, and then we incorporate with the HVAC and incorporate combustion safety and all these other things into it, then what we get is a house where we get the overall experience where we get the optimal wellness and health and safety for the consumer, and that's what we're trying to achieve. We want to get the most healthy, safe, and durable component for the consumer, and if the hitchhiker that comes along with it is something that's energy efficient, more power to it, and usually what we're finding is when we put all these components together as a system, what you're going to end up with is a house that's going to be roughly 50% less energy consumption versus a house that would have been built to the 2006 code. So, so talk about that because a point that you brought up that really is intriguing is you had made the comment as well that energy efficiency is great, but you really don't care unless it's a safe house, right? Yes. And so whether it be from uh, you know, the combustion aspect or certain things in the home if it's not ventilated properly, right. you know, so, so speak about that as far as you know, the intent there to design a safe home and then integrate energy efficiency. Well. It all starts with, with the breath, really. I mean, we all like to breathe. Mm -hmm. We like to breathe clean air. So we need to have some... Well, with that, and you have chemicals off paint products. Yeah. I mean, other things. And some people that we've realized, some of our customers are really sensitive to that. So they're really concerned about... So it's, it's critical that, one, we look at the products that are going in the house and what the VOC content, mm -hmm. um, you know, what the you know off-gassing potential could be and use products that have low off-gassing potential. And then the second thing is, we want to properly ventilate and bring in fresh air so that you know, we have optimal air quality all the time. So, so when, when you're looking at that, so help, help our listeners understand this. When you are in a home that's built um, to optimal ventilation, right? It's a tight air, tight home. And let's say that the homeowner's taking a half an hour shower. Mm -hmm. Are there systems in place that automatically will balance the moisture, bring in fresh air intake, or do you recommend that there's some education now with our clients that maybe they need to run that exhaust fan for 30 minutes after a shower? Yeah, there's some, there's a few different ways that you can go in that aspect. I'm in favor of systems that are kind of automatic. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Because instruction's tough and it's hard for people to remember. It hasn't been on a half an hour, you know. If, if, you're, if you're doing something more automatic, then you're, leaving less opportunity for an occupant to you know, possibly control something incorrectly. So you know, a, a spot ventilation fan that runs at a low ventilation rate continuously, that can be part of your ventilation rate that makes you comply with the ventilation standard that's codified. 
So, so when you say run continuously, that's running 24-7 or that yeah. it kicks on when the shower's on? Yeah. No, but it's just running all the so time. So you got a switch that mm-hmm. makes it kick on when the shower's on. Mm-hmm. And let's just say you go from 20 CFM continuously where no matter what, you don't even hear it. It just runs. Mm-hmm. And then you flip the switch, it goes to 70. When yeah. You really need the ventilation. And that way, if the occupant never flips the switch... It's still consistent. It's you still there. have no issue. You have, you have no problems. And... You also can use that as part of what you're doing to meet the you know, code requirements for your ventilation rates. So it's a win-win-win. Which is amazing. So let's get back to that. So as we're incorporating automation and we're talking about advanced framing, so what, what is the process? Because I know one of the questions that most of us builders have, especially if we're late in the game, but for an architect who's working with some of the same engineers, that same mentality, what would be the process to now design a home with optimal advanced framing, at what point in the stage does that come into play? And then they I think it all design. starts with the design. And I think really to get a good design that works as a system, it requires getting kind of those stakeholders together, you know, where you have mechanical design, you have, so mechanical to include HVAC, mm-hmm. which would be your heating, cooling, and ventilation. Um, and you also have your architectural design all working together so that they're working with kind of what your goal is for your energy design goal with maybe a hers rate or someone like that and you're incorporating that together so that what you end up with is a system that's going to work harmoniously together and that's really you know the, the first thing that we want to you know what i always you know get back to is the first thing that we always want to look at is how is is this building going to be durable for a long period of time? How is it going to be safe? Let's start with those things and then let's incorporate the thermal benefits and the energy efficient benefits. And what we're gonna find out is that those things are just gonna come along for the ride, particularly if we're incorporating into our design philosophy that we're gonna do advanced framing and our HVAC um, mechanical design is incorporated with that. We're gonna get right size HVAC and we're also going to get a design that makes the unit run long enough so that it's not going to short cycle, so that it's going to use less energy. It's also going to run long enough that it's going to keep the air mixing long enough so that we get consistent temperatures throughout and we get optimum you know, durability. Because that's one of the issues is, you know, as your AC is kicking on and off and on and off, right? There's energy surges, right? There's a cost yep. to that, whereas if it's running more consistently, it's going to be more efficient, less cost. And, and to that point, you know, where you have typical industry standards of how much tonnage is, uh, how many condensers or, you know, the air handlers are installed in home, you can minimize that. You know, you can maybe have less condensers because it's more efficient as you're calculating, you know, the how many windows and overhangs. And then again, the 24 inches on center, uh, you know, it's super valuable. So how, you know, for someone who hasn't done a structural design with 24 inches on center, what would you recommend? What are... Are there certain, uh, you know, experts they could reach out to or engineers nationally that they could reach out to to maybe help them understand how to structurally design a 24-inch on-center home? Yeah, I would, I would definitely recommend um, Department of Energy has done quite a bit of research on advanced framing and 24 inches on-center design and whatnot. Um, BuildingScience.com is a great resource. So I would recommend if you go into BuildingScience.com, look at the search um, tool, and if you just punch in advanced framing, what you're gonna find is a whole variety of resources that are gonna give you guidance. There are builder's guides also available from the same website. 
um, builder field guides that give you some very good guidance to what the right process is for advanced framing and how to properly implement it. So those are some of the resources that are available. And there's a lot of research that's been codified through different building science consortiums like Building Science Corporation, et cetera, and so forth that have done a lot of that research to show exactly what the difference is, you know, both from an actual case study research standpoint and from a projected research standpoint. That's brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. And so as we get into advanced framing, you know, and you talk about like a California corner. So, you know, where you have a home, uh, you know, that's full sheathing, right? Mm -hmm. Full sheathing. What do you recommend? Because now there's a process there, right? You have to get in and we want to insulate that corner without bringing an insulation truck out just for one visit to do our California corners. What would you recommend, you know, from a strategy perspective for the framer and superintendent that are managing that process? Yeah, I mean, designing like a California corner, I mean, simply you're taking studs that are unnecessary out of the corner. Mm -hmm. You may need a nailer um, to attach your corner pieces if you're doing a traditional siding home, not a stucco home. So you may need to add an extra piece of lumber back in there to be that nailer, and there's really good guidance on how to accomplish that. But basically what you're doing is you're taking out lumber that would be obstructing you from getting insulation back there that's unnecessary and removing it so now you can get back there. And now you're increasing, now essentially you're going from without, with conventional framing with solid block corners um, and 60 on center, you're going from like 23% of the wall being wood to like, you know, 15 or 16% of the wall being wood. And explain that, you know, so not only are you saving the lumber, but if you're going from 23% of the exterior being lumber to 14, how does that affect our values and insulation just by itself? That's, I mean, you're basically getting the benefit. It's like, um, let me just do a quick calculation. You're you're almost getting like a 10% improvement for free just by reducing the lumber. So you're saving on lumber and you're getting a, ten, a 10% increase in insulated value to the home. Yeah, you're, if you run parallel path calculations, <coughs> your average R value on average R1360 on center wall, somewhere in the like six to seven range. And if I cut that lumber out and I go to two by six 24 on center, it gives me the average of like an R to the entire thing continuously. So it's a little bit greater than a 10% improvement just on that one thing. Then when you factor in the fact that I can get more insulation in there, now I'm getting to the point where I'm talking about getting an average R value up in the 13 range and the total R value of the wall, which started at around six or seven, I'm getting to the point where, you know, with perfect insulation, you know, I'm very close to doubling the R value. Which is amazing. So explain that a little bit more because I think a lot of people feel that maybe if you add insulation, if you just double up the insulation, that affects our, but it really doesn't. It's more the design of how tight, how tight it is. And again, the, the less amount of lumber. I'll give you an example. So if there, there are places where I try to make this not too complicated, but, um, so if I we look, love complications. If I, if I look at a roof deck, for example, and you know, really this is talking about the difference between R value, which is just measuring conduction, and you know, ACH fifty, which is measuring convection. If I were to go to the roof deck and in a climate zone three example, and I'll use Atlanta, Georgia, for example, um, if I went to the roof deck and I compared R twenty two versus R thirty the total reduction in heating and cooling energy usage in MMBTU or millions of BTUs 
would be less than 4% to go from R22 to R30. If I change to the ACH50, which mm -hmm. is what we're required to do by code, is where um, ACH50 is a volume metric of volumetric air changes. If I change ACH50 from 7 to 3, that'd be about a 24% improvement, which would mean that that convection, reducing the air infiltration, was actually far more valuable than actually reducing or increasing the R value. So really, again, it goes back to that whole systems thing where if I can increase the R value and I can make it tight at the same time, I'm going to actually, I might have less R value on the roof deck and I might actually have something that's far more resilient that performs far better. So most of the homes that we see where they've actually moved that air boundary or air control layer up to the roof deck, most of the time when I'm looking at those homes, they're using almost 50% less energy than a house um, built to the 2006 code and homes that are built conventionally are more in the 30% range. So there's an opportunity to build something far more resilient, far more comfortable, and you know that's going to end up you know way more comfortable because now your duct works in a 75 degree space instead of 160 degrees. Yeah, and it's not trying to blow cold air through 150 degrees. Yeah, you know, what was interesting in the symposium we had today, you know, the the last guy in the room that anyone expected to raise his hand and say I want to put less tonnage in was the HVAC guy, and the first guy to raise his hand and say please give me this because I would love to put less tonnage in your house was the HVAC guy. Yeah. Because he's looking at it from a practicality standpoint, mm -hmm. that means more happy customers. That means when he goes to do a change out, yeah. How many HVAC? You know, HVAC guys make a lot of a money lot of money on the service on side, on the service side, and the replacement side, and the homeowners hate it. It's so expensive. Wouldn't Wouldn't you rather do a change out in a seventy five degree attic? Yeah. Well, and that's our thing. I mean, unfortunately, we had you know, there's there's been some health issues in Phoenix, and we had you know one technician that got caught up there, and you know there was a misfortune there, and. Yeah, they'd rather work in 75 degrees than 150. It's really hard in the summer, and typically when they're in the attic, it's in the summer, right? So you want that conditioned space. But along that point, so to break this down a little bit for our listeners, I mean, you're, you're talking about ACH, right? And you're talking about the volume. And one thing that was super fascinating to me, so the, the example you gave, you said, let's say the insulation was installed perfectly, with the exception of you have a 1% void, and you base that, okay, all the insulation's installed, and now... And, and we're basing this not on the roof deck being insulated, but just right. the ceiling, right? And then you have your attic access lid, which is super small, small enough for me to crawl through. And if you have that void, how does that affect the R value, the percentage? Well, it, what's, what's interesting about that scenario mm -hmm. is voids are something that people don't realize how important they are. And when it comes to a void in that example, if you had perfect R30 in a 2,000 square foot attic, uh, everywhere but 20 square feet, and you did the math on it, you know, the simple math shows you that that's a 23% reduction. Which is crazy. Up. I mean, that blew my For mind. 1% void. Just 1% void. Just 1% so, of that void affects your insulated value by 23%. So getting, you know, thermal layers that control the thermal resistance across the board and give you more continuous insulation becomes critical. And, and it goes back to your point that you know, an airtight home, you know, with advanced framing, 24 inches on center, you know, doing spray foam on the roof deck, right. it's your walls, a tight house. Well, now you have air-conditioned attic, right, as your techs mm -hmm. are up there working. You have less units, we'll say. You know, it's it's running, you know, the, the ducts now are running through air-conditioned space, and so you're saving on that energy loss. Well, I mean, the other side of it is, as, as we see in the Southwest, the trend to go more and more contemporary and more modern. Yeah. We're getting less and less space to put the ductwork. 
which is our challenge. And now, because we're able to reduce the size of the equipment, and even a little bit, that means we can put ductwork that's a little bit smaller, and it benefits everybody because we end up with something that's going to work better because we don't need as big a ductwork if we don't have as big of equipment. So let's talk about that a little bit because one of the challenges we have as a builder so many times, and I'm sure most of our other builders will concur, is that you have an architect that designs the house right. without any thought of the HVAC design. They're kind of working independently. And so now it's like, okay, we need to install our ductwork. Well, we don't have, you know, there's trusses, there's beams. You know, we can't get the ductwork where it needs to be. So BIM modeling, I mean, is there a different technique there? I mean, when you're looking at HVAC design, how do you guys incorporate the challenges of running ducts? You know, energy efficiency is one thing, but how are you looking at all, you know, just how do we get the ducts where they need to be, especially in a modern home where we don't have a lot of space? It's a, it's a huge challenge, particularly when you're talking the custom home side. But again, I think it really starts with, you know, if we can influence the people who are designing the houses, that this is the design philosophy. I mean, I think most designers, you know, most architectural professionals, if, if they're aware of some of these design concepts, they would love to implement that. And it's just a matter of education and getting that education out there to the architectural community because it really, like, as I said, it all starts at design. So if we can affect the design side at design, then it's gonna make it a whole lot easier in the long run. But at the end of the day, you know, we're just going to have to use that design philosophy. You know, if you're a builder and, and you get a customer from an architect, you know, you're gonna to have to look at probably getting the trust engineering done. And that's something that you as the builder can help implement as you're getting the trust engineering done. I'm gonna to need to get ways to get ductwork from point A to point B. And yeah, it's gonna be more and more challenging, but anything that we can do to make it easier, you know, if it's vis-a-vis -vis smaller ducts or smaller HVAC equipment is just going to make it that much um, simpler to build these really complicated custom homes. So what do you recommend as far as, you know, when we're talking about smaller ducts and just the ducting itself, itself I mean, there's tests you can do, right, as you're installing it to, to test your leakage on your ducts. Because yep. what do you recommend as a percentage? I mean, when you're testing that, what would be optimal for duct leakage? Well, no leakage would be awesome. <laughs> right. If, if it's perfect, no leakage, right? Have you ever seen it where they have had no leakage in their ducts? I mean, I've, I've seen it pretty close. And really where you see, when, you, when you're measuring leakage, what you're really measuring is how much leakage is going to outside the condition envelope. Once you get your ductwork in condition space, when you do that test, you get an extra advantage of mm -hmm. being within the condition envelope. So it's going, that leakage number is going to test is a flashing number or something that is so tight that it is almost too tight to accurately measure with conventional equipment, which is what we would call very close to no leakage. Yeah. I don't know if you could really call it zero leakage, but ultimately it should be just like a plumbing system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that, that like a plumbing system as you're tying in the collars and maybe using a zip tie to make sure that yep. it's fully secured. Yeah, you want to you put the mastic, a deep bed of mastic in there before you slip something over the collar, whether it's metal flex or whatever type of ducting material you're using. And if you use the same and that's process, almost working like plumber's tape, right? When you're, yeah, you know, well, it's, it's making a, that connection, so it creates that airtight. Mastic's like if you're doing PVC, mm -hmm. it's like buttering up with a yeah. chemical before you stick them together. Yeah, that creates that airtight and, and locks in it in. In this case, mastic's water-based, so it's not a chemical. What it is, it's more like paint or something like that. That it's a sealant like caulk, where you're almost taking like, like a bed of the sealant, and mm -hmm. then once you zip tie it tight, once that sealant cures, 
then it's going to be there and it's never going to leak in that point. So it's the same type of process. So Aaron, this is so fun because I could sit here and we could talk about so many things. So how, you know, what's your background? How did you become so knowledgeable? It was funny because even today in the symposium, every question that was thrown at you from all the different experts, you know, and that people that had different knowledge, like you had an answer for all of it. So what, tell us about your background, what brought you to where you are now in the building science industry? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I've, I've had a kind of interesting trial by fire career. I served with Louisiana Pacific um, when we were actually manufacturing cellulose back in the 90s um, with a company called Greenstone. And then we um, spun that What off. was your role there? Like, what were you doing for them? Yeah, so I was working with Louisiana Pacific. We we decided that that was, you know... Well, real quick, if I interrupt, do you have like an engineering background or is this just as you've learned no, and continue education? I have a GC background. Okay. So I started out kind of as an insulation contractor when we were trying to prove concept that you could compete with conventional insulation with sprayed fiber. That's when foam was a little bit too expensive to be in the marketplace. And then I ended up getting in, you know, I went on and got my GC license in Florida about 20 years ago. And I went in and I was still working with a subcontracting company and got in the home energy rating business almost completely by accident. So I uh, had a home energy rater who was out there changing specs on me and I went out and I was like, well, you know, I could probably do that too. And within, you know, a year, I had a plan review center that was, you know, supporting a large energy um, program nationally that was, um, you know, we were, we were doing enough business to be a standalone. And then within a year and a half, we had a testing center that was working regionally. And then that was it. I was kind of in that kind of herds industry. And within two to three years, I was working, I had a crossroads where I was building custom homes um, in one role. And then I had the plan review center. And I had the opportunity to go out full on on my own, just doing custom homes or go to work with Environments for a Living around 2006, 2007. And I decided I wanted to go with Environments for a Living because I thought it would be an opportunity to learn. And we remember what happened in the marketplace back then. Mm -hmm. It was not really a fun time to be a custom home builder in Florida. Oh, no. Well, anywhere. I mean, Florida was bad. Arizona, Florida, where I am, was bad. Florida was, was, was really bad. Pretty bad. It's and probably so, one of the worst. I mean, Vegas and California and Arizona, and but so Florida was bad. I started, you know, I was, uh, we were the largest Energy Star certifier in the country. We are about 10% of all Energy Star ratings. And so I had a QA responsibility where it was right when they implemented um, quality assurance um, requirements for ResNet, which is the um, organization that certifies most Energy Star homes. And so I had a QA responsibility where I was doing that nationally and I was responsible for business development in the eastern United States. And it was it was interesting. You know, I was going and meeting with builders and I found out that in the worst market that we've probably ever experienced in construction, that the value of providing a solution that could cut warranty costs in that market was really valuable. And during that time period, the Eastern United States had almost no business in our organization, and we went from zero to you know worst to first 
in a, about a four to five year period, we had 400% year over year growth every year wow. from 2006 to 2020. And is that, and you consider that, that, that the reason for that happening was because you were providing value on less warranty? Exactly. On, yep. Precisely because we were providing solutions. There's, yeah, you're providing value. And it was like, so from there, so you know, my career went in a totally different direction. And um, BASF aggressively pursued myself and my, my uncle, Rick Davenport, to come over to the Center for Building Excellence. Um, and it really became more of a role in product development and marketing. And so that, that was a really interesting point in my career because I was able to you know, work with an unlimited R&D budget and be able to play around and do some structural testing and find out how things really work and also really get the whole supply chain from the molecule down to the field. So that was kind of interesting. So I did that for a little while and at this point landed here with SES Polyurethane Systems as a director of building science. So I definitely consider that to be a valuable stepping point in my career. And talk, you know, tell our consumers, you know, what what is you're doing now? You know, SES foam, like what, yeah. what is there? SES Polyurethane Systems was a huge opportunity for me to get back into looking at more R&D and more innovative systems. Uh, we have a proprietary spray foam product called SucraSeal that is <clears throat> a really cool product because you know, we used to, with cellulose, which is like recycled newspaper, mm -hmm. historically we used to do these penny burn tests where we'd take a piece of cellulose and we'd have like 15% boric acid in it, we'd put a penny on top of it and we'd hit it with a blowtorch and show people that it wouldn't burn. I was like, you know, paper, who would think that you could actually hit a piece of paper with a blowtorch? Yeah. The boric acid would create this crust on it and the crust would give it fire protection. And so SES Polyurethane Systems has a SucraSeal product the first time I Can saw it. explain what that is? I'm, I'm about okay. to in there. It's, it's a high spiobase open cell foam on the market, but what's cool about it is they figured out how to make that biobase, you know, about 20% of the product is sucrose or sugar. Mm -hmm. And so this product is truly the creme brulee of spray foam. <laughs> I mean, like, I, love I, I, creme brulee, so. I would not suggest eating it, <laughs> yeah. but what. What the product does is, if you hit it with a blowtorch, and I've, I I saw this a few years back, if you hit this thing with a blowtorch, you could do that penny burn test with it, because if you hit it with a blowtorch, it just creates a char, and that char actually gives it fire protection. So it has an integral ignition barrier built into the design as an added benefit of the product. So that's that's been pretty cool working with this, and so... And so it's a fire retardant, I mean, it's sugar-based, and so how, you know, you know, how, what would you recommend for any of our builders that want to use this product in their homes? Well, would they talk to the local supplier? Or? Yeah. So when you're talking about um, spray foams, particularly in custom homes, you know, having an ignition barrier saves a step and also makes you not have to deal with, you know, what do I do here? What do I do there? If you have an ignition barrier integral in your product and it meets Appendix X, mm -hmm. you have to worry about it. The product meets code and it's not going to burn. So that would be my recommendation is to use a product like that. Typically any product like that, you know, is going to be available through whoever your insulation suppliers are. They'll be able to get it typically, you know, if, if they need to, they can obviously contact SES Polyurethane Systems and we can get a rep out there to make sure they can get it, but they can get that product. The product's widely available on the market everywhere in North America. and. 
it's it's a really cool product. But so when and when we're installing this product and we're spray foaming the interior and the the roof deck of a house, are there other products or systems to make it more airtight, or does that fully solve the problem from an airtight yeah. seal? So you're talking about <clears throat> that product is rated as an air barrier, so it's an air control layer if you're three and a half inches or greater. Mm -hmm. So at that spec, I mean, pretty much any time that you spray it in your walls or you spray it to your roof deck, you're going to be exceeding that three and a half inches. Or if you're just doing the bare minimum, doing a two by four system, you're going to be right at that three and a half inches. So yeah. it's going to be rated as an air barrier. It's going to tighten walls, floors, ceilings, all those things. And it's going to give you that thermal resistance. The cool thing about using like a spray applied product like that, if you went to a roof deck, for example, or if you went to a floor, you would increase the thermal resistance versus conventional insulation by almost 20% because now you're getting 10 you're actually getting this continuous insulation that's going through the web of the floor truss or the web of the roof truss. It depends on what type of web is to the exact percentage, but you're getting a considerable improvement because of that continuous insulation kind of boundary that you're getting in addition to, whereas if you had conventional insulation, you'd end up with a one and a half inch or in some floor trusses, more of a three and a half inch gap. Yeah, and yeah. so to explain that, because you're saying, you know, if you were to use like a bad insulation, you're going to have those voids, right? Yeah. We've talked about those gaps yeah, of the lumber. Yeah, you have a three and a half inch. But void. as you're doing the spray foam, you're spraying over that lumber, if you will, and so you have that continuous yep. insulation seal. So you're getting continuous, like five and a half, eight, ten, whatever inches you want to spray, it goes all the way through. And Which on a roof deck, on a floor, especially in Phoenix, where it's super hot, right, or in other climates, you know where it can be a challenge, it really creates that air barrier. Yeah, exactly. So, t you know, talk to us a little bit about, you know, as we get into um, the seven tenets of building science, that was something you brought up, and it was the first time I had heard that myself, and there were seven points. You talked about tight construction, ventilation, optimized thermal, HVAC, pressure balancing, moisture management, and combustion safety. So touch on a few of the... A few of those points and, and what those mean for the... Well, I'll start with combustion safety because that's probably the most important. Yeah, um, combustion safety, we need to make sure that we don't put anything that is atmospherically vented that requires air from the space that it occupies in conditioned space. Period. So if we have an airtight home that's conditioned space, what are some examples of something that could create combustion issues? So like a water heater. Mm -hmm. a water heater, you know, a <clears> typical, <throat> you know, bargain cheapest water heater that you can get that's natural gas is typically going to be atmospherically vented. If you put it in the garage outside the condition envelope, it may not be the most efficient location mm -hmm. from a standpoint of how far it is from your master bedroom. Right. But depending on how cold and hot it gets, you, you know. know, the garage is going to be traditionally pretty leaky, so it's not going to be as much of an issue. Um, typically, the, the cool thing about when you go to a higher efficiency or when you go to a sealed combustion product, it also increases the efficiency. So, like a sealed combustion, atmospherically, atmospherically vented. Um, furnace is typically 80% efficient, so 80% of the heat that's generated from the combustion actually gets used, and 20% of it's just waste from the combustion process. You go to something that's sealed combustion, it's typically going to start at 92 to 94% range, and so you're actually combusting at a lower temperature, and you actually end up with more of that heat and energy actually transferred where you want to, so you end up with plus waste which equals less dollars in homeowner bills. So would you recommend, going back to the water heater example, would you recommend a traditional water heater or maybe a tankless? I mean, do you see advantages of using the tankless? Tankless, I mean, 
anything can be installed if it's installed correctly. When you go to tankless water heaters, that's an interesting subject because with a tankless water heater, it does, I hate it when you hear them call it instantaneous mm -hmm. because it's not really what it is. It actually gives you a little bit more of a lag than a traditional tank system because it actually has to have a certain amount of water flow in order for it to decide, okay, we need to start creating heat. So you actually, if in a traditional tankless system, you actually get a little bit more wasted water. That's why you see some of the higher performing tankless systems actually start to add tanks, like your Navians and things like that. You know, they start to add like these small, like integral tanks in them. Just like storage tanks? Yep, mm -hmm. just like many, like one gallon, two yeah. gallon, you know, storage tanks within them. And then they're adding things like recirculation pumps on mm -hmm. them. So I think anything can be done. There, there's, a, there's a nice advantage of not having to store hot water created by the tankless systems, but tankless systems are like a lot of things they're not a silver bullet mm -hmm. and if you want to do a tankless system you know if you still if you run it a hundred feet from the use it's still going to use a whole lot of water yeah the, the run is so long if you can do a system where you have like a tank with a loop design where you have a loop that goes all the way back to the unit and you have some occupant sensors that'll kind of prime the pump on that loop so that <clears throat> you have a temperature sensor or a pump that's based on temperature rise, those tend to work really well and use the least amount of energy. So if you had a traditional tank system, like say in this market, a heat pump um, tank system would work really good and would use very little energy. If you had a recirculation pump that had a, either a occupant sensor by motion control, which you can get those, which I've used those in various projects, or even like a doorbell type of occupant sensor that you, you prime the pump with that occupant sensor so that when you actually turn on the hot water, it's likely going to be get to a point where it's hot. Motion sensors work really well. Um, yeah, that's a way where you can really eliminate a lot of the waste of water. And I see a lot of people using tankless systems as kind of a magic bullet, and they end up with systems that waste a lot of hot water. So I'm going to divert a little bit as you're talking about wasted water, energy efficiency, you know, being um, eco-friendly. You know, these are a lot of the things that a lot of us are trying to think about how to, you know, better this uh, this world for the you know our children and those that come along, right? As these new things come into play. So as we divert a little bit, we'll come back to this. But you you made a point today that there's a builder in Houston that has an underground water retention system design that I think you mentioned that after two inches of rain they could live off that water for six months. Is that correct? It's so actually, it's actually a builder in, in, in Austin, Texas. Okay. What did I say, Houston? Houston. Austin, yeah, Austin. But the, the way that the whole system design is, is kind of funny. Um, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. Right. <laughs> so I was, um, one, one of the, the water gurus out there is Gary Klein. He's probably done more research and more work towards um, trying to figure out how to not waste hot water than just about anyone I know. But I picked him up, we were doing a, um, we were doing a conference together where we, were, we had Gary in as a speaker, and we picked him up from the airport, he goes, you wanna see net zero hot water? And I was like, well, what are you talking about, Gary? <laughs> and he goes, I was, I'm like, I mean, that sounds like a pretty wild, abstract subject. And he goes, there's a guy who's doing um, custom homes, like, you know, just right around the corner. So two hours later, we finally arrive at this model home that's like probably closer to San Antonio than is Austin. 
and we see the first iteration of this guy's system to do kind of like what we're talking about with net zero water. So fast forward to today, the other guy in the car with me was um, Chris Little, and he, he was the guy who has a company called Elevate Homes out in Austin, Texas. And so fast forward to today, he's actually implemented that type of system on his custom homes. And what he's doing is he's essentially taking big custom homes that have this huge amount of roof surface area, mm -hmm. using things like metal and things that the water can cleanly get you know, from point A to point B with, and then essentially um, piping them to like a cistern that is either beside, under, what have you in the house and implementing it so that, you know, it's essentially a rainwater collection system where a couple inches of rainwater on a large custom home can give you as much as six inches or six months water supply on a couple inches of rain. So let's, so what's interesting about that, stuff. yeah, because here in Phoenix, you know, we look about all this roof space and we have so much sun and you see, okay, let's optimize that for solar, right? We can implement the solar side of things. But this is a step further where you're saying, okay, now let's look at the, all this roof space. We're going to collect this water, bring it into a tank, you know, two inches of rain, how much water that is on the footprint of a house. But is there a filtration system or what are yes. they doing? I, I would imagine there's something yeah. as the tank's yeah, holding got, and running through. You've got ultraviolet lights, you've got filters, you've got all kinds of things that have to be integrated. And the, the Generation 1 that, you know, I saw years ago with Gary... Um, yeah, it was like a bunch of PVC pipes and wasn't very attractive. Mm -hmm. the, the stuff that I'm seeing today is, you know, you never would know it was there. And it's really, really cool stuff that they're doing. And So know, how big is a holding tank? Do you have any idea? Uh, they're putting like 30,000 gallon. Wow, systems. so you have a 30,000 gallon tank that's collecting yeah. the water. Then it's running through a filtration system with ultraviolet and different things. And now becomes potable water, right? Yes. For your shower, Correct. toilets. I mean, is, is that what it's running? It's some of the best drinking water that you can... So yeah. it is drinkable too. Oh yeah. yeah so it's not just for. Absolutely. That's amazing. No, it's really cool stuff. It's funny. I talked to some custom guys up in the Vegas market, and I was kind of asking them if anyone was doing anything like that in that area, and they're like, you know, actually, in the Vegas market, they couldn't, they weren't allowed to do anything like that because of water rights. They weren't allowed to collect the <sighs> water from the roof because of the water rights. It was illegal for them to. And that's uh, just shows you just the, the, type of, the type of um, you know water issues that we're going to be you know looking at in the near future. I mean, it's like we're getting to a point where it's like, how do you support you know? Well, all these people, and as yeah, there's more people and more usage, you know, and how much water we waste brushing our teeth and just the uh, right. nuances washing dishes. Well, you know, this is a way where you can be more energy efficient. I mean, what, what would be the cost? Do you have any idea what the cost would be to put in a system like that for Not a client? Too. Yeah, yeah, that's something we'd have to research. But again, you know, that's a way to optimize where I, you're I not know, paying for I know water. somebody that I could send you the information to talk about that that would be happy to discuss it with Yeah, you. I'd love to. I mean, that's something we'll have to go down. So getting back to the seven, you know, tenets of building science, you talked about combustion. So, you know, water heater would be one of those. I mean, what other um, units would, would be really, a concern? Fireplace? I or? mean, you're really talking about your water heater, your furnace. Obviously, if you have a fireplace or a stove, that has a lot of BTUs, which typically in custom home building, mm -hmm. you're putting a lot of BTUs in there, right? Yeah. So you have a place to get makeup there. Mm -hmm. you know, so you need to have a way to have something open up that can allow air to come in when you're pumping out 600, 1200, whatever CFM out of your hood vent. And there's some really simple ways you can do that. You can do that with a motorized damper mm -hmm. that's tied into you know the hood vent so that 
when you turn the hood on, it opens up and boom, you got your makeup there. To have the air balance because yeah. we're seeing that, especially as our customers, you know, that big range, 60 inch, yeah. you know, five foot range and, you know, the hood vent that's controlling that and you have to have that air balance. Yeah. So it becomes a design challenge where you've got to figure out a way to get that vent out to the outside, make it a straight enough run so that you can get the flow you need to create that makeup air. And, you know, that adds one more level of complexity of what we have to do when we have to build these houses as tight as we do right now. So Yeah, so they're super tight homes. You talk about combustion safety because what's the point of energy efficiency if it's not safe? Because give us an example. You had mentioned, uh, you know, being young in the home, your father had replaced a window. So tell us that, you know, why that's so important, the combustion safety aspect. Yeah, on the combustion safety aspect, I mean, well... That story is a little bit... It's not really combustion it's not safety. Really combustion yeah. safety. It's really more of like an overall occupant safety. Um, so we need fresh air ventilation. We need clean ducts. We need HVAC systems that are properly sized. So in the example I gave, the house I grew up in, yeah, it worked fine until my dad replaced the windows, and then all of a sudden the house became tight. And then we didn't realize that we had this buildup of organic material in the ductwork until the building became tight, and then everyone started getting sick. Got up in the attic, looked at the ducts, did some testing, found out that they were almost fully disconnected because that's the way they used to do ducts in the 50s. And when we looked on the inside, there was like this two-inch, you know, bio-nasty on the inside, and so it was a full duct change-out. So when you're looking at retrofit and remodels and things like that, you know, you need to think about air quality. The, the second point, uh, when we're talking about the tenants of building science, so combustion safety is critical. We don't want to create a situation where you can either have carbon monoxide in the house, obviously bad, um, or have you know a safety issue like pressure-induced flame rollout. Don't want any of those issues. Second issue is when we build the house, we want to design it so that we have um, you know the most healthy surfaces possible. But then we need to ventilate the things that are VOCs. We use cleaners. We use all kinds of different things in the construction process. And then when we, you know, hopefully we still use some things in the actual homeowner process because we want to have clean homes. You know, so we got VOCs and all these chemicals that we use to clean surfaces and all these other things. We need to have some ventilation in there so that people have some fresh air because we made these homes so tight that the house doesn't need to breathe, you know, air in the actual structure. It needs to breathe air in the house so that you're bringing in enough air so that the occupant's comfortable. So especially, I mean, in our, in our market, it's a little different. You know, we have good weather a lot of the years, so people have multi-sliders and windows open. But right. in some climates, you know, where it's cold and windows may be shut for most of the winter, you know, you, you need that fresh air intake, right, to balance that. Oh, I don't, I don't think those multi-sliders are open when it's 120. <laughs> yeah, they are not. <laughs> so we have the reverse effect, right? In the summer, everything's yeah. closed. You want that AC running. Yeah, so you want the AC running. You want to make sure that you got enough ventilation, that you're ventilating at a rate that the occupant can be comfortable and you can dilute all of the sources of pollutants. So how do you solve one of the other tenants then when you have a tight home and you have, you know, you're doing the natural air intakes that are coming in and, you know, people breathing and showers running, how do you deal with the moisture management? So I would just go to the spot ventilation. Um, you want to have spot ventilation to control the moisture sources. Here it's not as much of an issue as it is in some other climates. Yeah, we don't have a lot of humidity. It's really humidity. dry. But it's always a good idea. I would recommend following the EVA Water Management Guide for flashing details. Um, that's a great way to make sure that, you know, 
although it doesn't rain ever here yesterday it sure did it did when i came in and, and we get those torrential downpours and so when you talk moisture management it's not so much the interior is, but as much as the water resistant exterior, right? As far as whether you're using a zip system, zip wall, you know, right. Tyvek, I mean, how we're securing our windows, we water sure testing. We want to make sure that we have a way that we can naturally gravity drain our wall systems. Which one of the issues we have, and you bring this up, is the stucco. We do a lot of stucco in Phoenix, and one of the issues with stucco is it's very porous, right? It sucks in water. So if you don't have channels behind that stucco, that's going to drain, you know, work as a drain through the weed screen. So, you know, some of the, I know Tyvek and other products do have channels built in. Yep. So as the water gets sucked into the stucco, it can now drain and you don't have water building up in your walls. You know, and that's the issue with some of these stucco old, old methods where it's just black paper, right? And it's just right. sucking that water right into your plywood, right into your shear wall. Black paper can work. Um, but can it really? Yeah, it can. So, so how would that work if someone, just out of curiosity, because at least I've always been taught that, you know, black paper, you know, it doesn't work because it doesn't create that barrier and you don't have any way to, to digress and move that water. Yeah. I mean, the, my recommendation, if you're using black paper, you probably want a double slip sheet. Mm -hmm. So a double layer, um, would help to uh, make it work better. Obviously. I mean, there's different levels of performance you, know, yeah. you get what you pay for. Mm -hmm. So if you go to a Tyvek or you go to something that's more designed to have drainage channels, it's going to work a little bit better. You know, the Tyvek's got a really cool product. It's kind of like a crinkle wrap mm -hmm. kind of product where it really kind of creates these perforations and, well, really kind of drainage planes where it can really drain around there. And we've used that. It's like, it's, it's, really it's, cool. it's a great system there and it allows, and we've seen where it just sucks that water into the stucco and then drains right out. Yeah. So, speed. I mean, it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish, how much water you're trying to drain. You, know, you can look at fluid applied um, WRBs. I'm a big fan of those. Um, they're more commercial wall system application products. So most of your large commercial eaves companies or your manufacturers are your fluid applied WRVs, but I mean, that's kind of the Cadillac of them. But I mean, you know, really, if you have any good, I mean, the, the problem with felt paper is a lot of times people don't shingle it correctly, but hey, that's also the problem with Tyvek. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you see Tyvek reverse flashed where yeah. they reverse flash it into the wall system and overlap the seams the wrong way. So it all comes so to detailing the process. So yeah. when you have good detail and good process, you're gonna get a good result. And if you've got a good process where everyone understands you overlap things this way, you're gonna get a good result. But I mean, yeah, you know, I think Tyvek probably works better than, you know, number 30, but number 30 has been used for 100 years. Mm -hmm. And number 30, you know, there was a point in time where Tyvek had a product that didn't work as good that kind of turned into powder. You know, one of their first iterations of Tyvek and number 30, again, I would lean on the fact that it has been used for a longer period of time. Um, or Tyvek's a little bit more beneficial, particularly in a market like this, is when you have you know, a wall system built on bracing panels, just in nature, because it's got less seams, it's gonna help more as a air control layer than number 30. Number 30 is probably not gonna work so much as an air control layer. So it just kinda depends on what you're working with and both products can work. You can make anything work if it's installed correctly. And that's kind of what I lean on, but I think the Tyvek system or really any um, sheet rolled WRB system, which, you know, Dow's got a good product. There's several other competitive products on the market that are really good products. They're going to work a little bit better because they're going to give you 
for every continuous coverage. So it's interesting. I mean, a lot of the points that you continue to bring up, you talk about, um, you know, knowledge, correct installation, uh, you know, pre-planning, and it's amazing how you can spend a little time in pre-planning, you know, going back to the advanced framing, going back to HVAC design, spend a little time up front, you know, start working out proper installation practices and just understand that and how efficient now that can make us on the build side, right? And I, you know, that's something we have talked a lot about with our um, our team is how could we be more proactive in the front end designing right. it so in that way, you know, by the end, we're creating value, right? So one of your things when you're successful in your career, you create a value by less warranty and part of that's design and implementation. Um, so getting back to that, going back to the seven tenants, anything else, you know, from optimized thermal ventilation, tight construction HVAC that you want to touch on? I guess on the thermal side, you know, an eighth of an inch gap can reduce star value, you know, up to 45%. So so let's think about that. When you said that again, it was mind blown in the meeting. You know, you said an eighth of an inch gap in yeah. your insulation, you know, that air gap will, will 45%. Yeah. Well, I mean, that kind of goes to the whole like 1% void thing. It's like, it's mind blowing how a very, very small detail relatively um, can diminish the value of something by an incredible amount. So my, my preference when it comes, when you're looking at thermal, you know, it, it all starts with having the airtight first. And then once you have the airtight, you've, you've got the really, really tight structure and that air control area, oh, by the way, it could be thermal too. So, you know, in this case, we're talking about spray foam. Well, spray foam controls air, it also controls thermal, and that open cell spray foam is also vapor permeable. So that's going for it too. In this climate, when you're a hot climate or a hot mixed climate, vapor permeance is critical because you don't want to trap moisture anywhere. Mm -hmm. So we get the air control layer, the thermal, all in one shot, and then we couple that with good actual architectural design and good HVAC design, we've got something that's going to perform consistently and is really a repeatable process, even if you're building the most intricate custom homes like you're building. So when you talk about explaining to some of our listeners that may not understand the difference, open cell, closed cell, you know, the density, the benefits, I mean, you know some of the differences. Open cell is a half pound density product. Um, it's vapor permeable, you know, so it's highly vapor open. So Vapor can go through it very easily, so it's not going to have any places in the control areas where it can trap moisture. And it's because it's half pound density, and closed cell foam is two pound density. It's roughly a quarter of the cost of closed cell foam. So it's kind of a lightweight, low density that gives you all the benefits of air sealing without being, you know, more expensive because cost of density. So it's not cost prohibitive. <coughs> When you get into closed cell products, closed cell products are a two pound density product. They have some really cool properties because they become a class two vapor retarder at 1.5 inches. They give you some condensation benefits that are really important in cold climates. So in cold climates, you see a lot of walls done where you see hybrid systems where they do inch and a half, couple inches of closed cell foam and then they'll fill the rest of the cavity with something less expensive. You even see scenarios where they do hybrid systems where they do couple inches of closed cell phone and fill the rest of the cavity with open cell phone in those climates. Because one of them is to control condensation, mm -hmm. the other one's to, you know, again, fill the rest of the cavity with something fluffy that gives you an air barrier. And you, by doing a hybrid assembly, you can control cost. The other thing about closed cell phone is it has almost double R value. So 
Like our next deal closed cell phone product is our value of seven per inch. Cool. Open cell phone is going to be somewhere around 3.75 per inch. So it's almost twice the R value as an open cell product. So higher R value. Again, we talked about why higher R value a cavity isn't as important. And your colder markets, it's really the best system design is to look at some type of continuous insulation on the outside coupled with something like a closed cell phone for condensation control. And then you don't have to worry about trying to use control layers that could trap moisture because everything then goes on the inside. So. And I've seen that technique down. And, you know, you talked about if someone's doing a remodel, you know, how, you know, in some of these older homes, whether historic homes throughout the country or in Phoenix, you know, we're not, we don't have too many historic homes. You know, it's fairly new construction. But to that point, you know, the, the methods weren't as good. And so you had talked about that instead of, you know, where we have low pitches, and it's really hard to get into the attic. You had talked about, well, maybe there's a different way to reconfigure a roof, right? Where you're insulating the roof structure, right? You're building it up and insulating that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. And would you, if, if you were to do something, if you were to insulate a roof, you know, um, and run, I don't know, two by eights or whatever you're going to do, and then fill those cavities with a closed cell, or what would you recommend on the roof structure? Well, I mean, this kind of goes out of the realm of closed cell foam. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could just go on top of the roof and do multiple layers of like sheet foam. Yeah, and basically insulate the top of the roof that way and then put something like a OSB or substrate or nailing deck surface over that, fasten that through down to the trusses or the rafters or whatever you're fastening to as an alternate means of getting insulation there and then take off your soffits and detail it with closed cell foam to create a conditioned attic. So there's yeah, more than one way to take that. Like in a retrofit application, you might want a specific look, you know, in a remodel, you might want to um, get like a metal roof look or, you know, something like that. And, or you might want a shingle roof or mm-hmm. what have you. But that might be a way that you can kind of look at it from the outside and instead of the inside out and have kind of a slightly different result. Because at the end of the day, you know, like a continuous insulation of R25 is the equivalent of what the code calculation is for R38. So, when you go continuously, you can actually accomplish a lot more with less R value than what you would think you would accomplish if you're just comparing code R values because cavity, um, code prescriptive R values on cavities are based on worst case scenarios with like two by six rafters, space 16 on center. So when you look at cavity based R value, there's a lot of thermal bypass calculated into that. So you can accomplish almost the same thing in a retrofit application. Again, a good place to look for guidance on that for deep energy retrofits. BuildingScience.com's got some great information on deep energy retrofits and how to go from the outside. So let's leave the listeners before we talk about where they can find you. And, and um, again, we thank you for your time, Aaron. But one of the points you also made was you talked about, you asked the question, uh, you said, what's more dense or what's heavier, right? Moisture air or dry air? So expound that because I think you caught all of us off guard. We have this mentality of what the answer should be, and we're all wrong. Well, yeah, moisture-laden air is actually um, substantially less lighter. Which still, it's fascinating. You'd think it's the other way, that moisture in the air is heavier, but it's not. No, it's it's actually substantially lighter. And this has been something that (laughs) has taken a little bit of time and calculation to figure out, but... You can actually figure it out just by looking at the periodic table. Moisture-laden air is substantially lighter than dense dry air, which is counterintuitive to what we all conventionally think. So if 
you had moisture buildup in an attic, it's not going to be at the floor of the attic. It's going to be at the roof. At the, at the, yeah, the highest how we point. design ventilation systems. Mm -hmm. We design ventilation systems to ventilate <clears throat> like that. But it's not really because of that. Um, so in the research that we've seen over the past few years, there's been quite a bit of research in kind of unvented air permeable attic systems where they found that you can actually ventilate moisture through the peak of a roof because that's where it builds up. And again, that's DOE um, dollars at work that have figured that stuff out. So if you want to ventilate moisture from the peak of a roof, that would be like a really good idea. For any of you that want to follow SCS Foam and, and see some of the technologies they're using, some of the products out there, I have their handles. So on Facebook, um, Instagram, Twitter, SCS Foam LLC, that would be the handle to go on there. And where else can they find more information about you, Aaron, and what you guys are doing? Yeah, you can always follow me on Twitter at Davenport Aaron. Um, and <clears throat> you can find more information on SAS Foam on sasfoam.com. Great. And you'll be able to find a wealth of information there. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Aaron, and making time. Hopefully this was beneficial to you guys, and we're super excited to implement some of the strategies and techniques that you taught us today. I know our architects and designers are, are super excited, and uh, until next time. Fantastic. Thank you. A big thanks to Aaron Davenport for joining us today on the AFT Construction Podcast to speak about building science, and make sure you stay tuned for next week as we host J.J. Levinsky, and we're going to dive into entrepreneurship and how to better your business.